0: With the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert
1: opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China.
0: Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Jiaoyang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's show, we'll talk about China's economy rebounded more than expected in the first quarter of this year. And how should we regulate the chatbot technology? And now let's begin with our top story. China's economy rebounded more than expected in the first quarter of this year. The country's GDP grew at 4.5% in the first three months. Household spending and factory activity helped in giving it a boost. Separate data also shows consumer retail sales are up more than 10% for March. Factory activity was up 3.9%, a little bit lower than expected. So what are the main driving forces for China's economic recovery, and will this growth momentum sustain or even accelerate through the rest of the year? So for more on this, join us on the line now are Yan Liang, Professor of Economics at University, and also Ina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So first, yen, China's GDP expanded by 4.5% in the first quarter. What are your thoughts on this number?
2: Right so I think what this shows is that you know with the lifting of the COVID restrictions um, China's economy is on the way of robust recovery and to me this number is slightly surprising in the sense that it uh, recovered earlier than I had expected because um, I think um, most of the economists at one point, uh, you know, last year was thinking that the Chinese economy probably will, will rebound very robustly uh, in the second half of the year because you know COVID usually comes with waves. Um, so it is a pleasant surprise that China's recovery actually, you know, uh, came earlier <laughs> than expected. Um, and yes, that that number is strong, and more importantly. Uh, that growth is mostly supported by consumption rebounds. Uh, Consumption contributed about two-thirds of this uh, growth in the first quarter. Uh, Retail sales has been strong. It has achieved 5.8% growth um, in the first quarter. Um, And then we also see, you know, industrial production has grown. Uh, to a total of about three percent, in the entire quarter um, fixed asset investment also grew by you know five point one percent in the three months cumulatively, and then surprisingly, we also saw strong export growth, um, you know, in March uh, by fourteen point eight percent, which again beats a lot of expectations of you know negative growth. So I think you know the general picture looks really great. Um, that China is off to a great start of that recovery process.
0: Mm. So Aina, so what do you think about this number? And also regarding the consumption, people say this is an important engine for the economic growth for this year. And we are seeing the consumer, the retail sales increase by more than 10% for March. So how do we explain it?
1: Well, I agree with Yan. I mean, this is a, a very, very good sign for China, especially on the uh, consumption side. the The problem with uh, exports is quite frankly, this was a very strong showing uh, for this quarter. A lot of that has to do with uh, catching up with uh, previous um, things that were on order, back order, etc. People are uh, renewing the inventory. The question, though, internationally, is because of the debt situation, inflation. Uh, the Fed rate rises. Um, there is real uh, concern that the, the main consumption areas, especially Europe and America, are going to go soft. Uh, but that's been balanced, good. And also ASEAN, where you saw over 35% increase in trade, um, obviously, you, you know, th- th- there is a real separation that's happening between what I would call the developed countries, which have very low growth at this, at this point in time, and the rest of the world. Um, where they're actually their growth is higher uh, than the uh, than developing countries. This is kind of a switch from the normal patterns, and uh, China is capitalizing on it. The Belt and Road Initiative, countries that are in the RCEP, are are being um, they're they're going full full tilt, and hopefully uh, the consumption in China will also uh, create opportunities for them as well, creating a, a better regional network. Uh, what but. At this point, it's going beyond regional. I mean, Africa, Middle East, and South America are are obviously benefiting as well.
0: Mm. And yeah so actually Aina mentioned the export. China's imports and exports increased by 4.8% in the first three months and the trade number seems better than expected but uh, you know as Aina uh, mentioned it is in a shifting pattern China's exports to the countries like the US and Japan are dropping but exports to ASEAN countries are increasing so how do you look at the uh, trade situation
2: right so i think that is uh that is correct right so that is what it's happening to china uh, in terms of trade is we not only see you know the 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 structure of trade has changed in mm-hmm. other words you know as china climb up the value added chain uh, china is no longer reliant on you know exporting labor intensive low skill type of products um china Uh, China's exports now will be more, you know, value added and it would also be more environmentally friendly. Um, I think that is optimized by, you know, the Canton Fair, the trade fair, um, where we see a lot more, you know, environmentally uh, friendly, um, you know, um, uh, sort of the green products. Um, On the other hand, we also see, as you mentioned, the shift in terms of China's trade partners. So yes, China's um, exports to the United States has dropped by 7.68%. Uh, with, U- with EU, it has gone up slightly by about 3%. But um, for ASEAN, China's export to ASEAN has gone up uh, by a whopping 35.4% um, in, 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 Mar- in March. So I think what that reflects are two things one is that I think a lot of these exports are really part of the global supply chain recovery um, that China is exporting a lot of intermediate goods and finished goods to ASEAN countries and they will then reroute them to other countries Um, but also I think even within ASEAN um, a lot of products now are fighting their final Uh, destination within the region. I think, you know, back in the 90s, um, you know, only about 10% of ASEAN exports, uh, sorry, uh, about China's exports to ASEAN were stayed within ASEAN regions for their final consumption. But now we're seeing a lot more, about 30%. Um, So I think that just shows that, you know, the trading, the international trade landscape has been changing. And um, so there's definitely growing in momentum, as Aina talked about, that um, China may find new trading partners around ASEAN partners and also you know, other Belt Road Initiative countries as well.
0: Mm. So Aina, so Canton Fair, actually it is a reliable barometer of the country's foreign trades and more guests are coming from the Asia-Pacific region and the BRI countries. So what does the evolution of the uh, Canton Fair tell us about the development of China's trade?
1: Well, I mean, there was a very sharp divide if you start looking at uh, the the people who were satisfied. It was all in the green energy, uh, electric vehicles, uh, machinery, high tech, um, anything, you know, with uh, industry 4.0. Areas where you can achieve efficiencies or that China is able to supply things at better uh, prices at higher quality. Where you saw a real downturn. Uh, was in the traditional industries, whether you're making Christmas tree decorations and lights or toys and things like that, that, those those areas have not been very fruitful. A lot of the companies that are still based in China uh, are going to have to make a decision whether they're going to continue cutting their uh, margins, um, and they're very low right now. Uh, or they're going to uh, close their shops or relocate uh, into other areas where they can use the labor dividend to be more competitive. So you you do, as Yan said, uh, China wanted to climb the – into the tertiary markets more services more high-tech goods and things like that it is doing that Uh, it is raising wages very important to consumption you cannot have um, an economy based on consumption unless there are two components one people have a job and two disposable income is increasing Mm -hmm. Uh, with those components in place with the uh, government pushing that um, of course uh, higher wages etc are going to drive out these kind of lower cost uh, economies uh, industries, but that's good news for the Belt and Road Initiative, and exactly uh, what was predicted uh, many years ago when it was first started—that uh, there would be this downstream effect uh, where it ties the economies more closely together. There's still parts, uh, component pieces that will be made in China because of the um, the economies of scale. Uh, but those component pieces will be shipped out to other places where they'll be assembled uh, with much cheaper uh, labor uh, and then sold off into markets at competitive prices.
0: And I know also when you look at the trade number, which is uh, up 4.8% in total, but you do see the reduced trade between China and the U.S., China's exports to Japan. So how much does the decoupling of the U.S. affect that? And how much impact is from the high inflation numbers over there?
1: Well, I, I think it's 50-50. I mean, you start looking at, uh, even even today, the US, there are stories that the U.S. is looking for more trade partners to put uh, more pressure on China. But on the other hand, I mean, what the... Fed is doing in the us is really having a bad impact on the u s. and the rest of the world. Um, and while they acknowledge that it's impacting the rest of the world, they don't seem to care. And you're seeing many countries and economies turning away from the us. So um, you you have the Fed pushing uh, you know very regressive, uh, rate incre- increasing rates, creating regressive economic uh, consequences for other countries as they have to defend their currencies by raising their rates, but therefore depressing economic activity at a time when they were hoping to recover coming out of COVID, when they have a lot of debt that they can't you know, sustain. Uh, very, very difficult to see uh, mm. how this is going to go. But the, the U.S. is intent on blaming uh, anybody else other than, you know, reflecting it in terms of what's going on in the U.S. and what they need to do, be more competitive. And mm-hmm. that's going to affect the U.S. negatively down the road.
0: And yeah, so talking about China's economy, actually, how do you look at the strong growth in the retail sales in March as the consumption sector is critical to the country's, you know, economic recovery?
2: Right. So definitely that is a welcoming sign that as you know, China wants to grow in a more balanced way to some uh, to, to you know, boost consumer demand and uh, in a way achieve higher quality of investment demand. So this, this retail sales growth, I think it's a good sign that, you know, China's consumers are spending. That said, I think, you know, this has a lot to do with uh, what people usually call the revenge spending. Um, mm-hmm. So... Uh, because people were cooked up during the COVID restrictions, they were not able to go out and spend money and they have accumulated a large amount of savings. And so that's why I think the retail sales are growing. And the same thing with, you know, service industries, especially when you look at catering, uh, hospitalities, and many other uh, travel-related industries, right, that they're growing at a very fast pace. Um, So when you look at the service sector, the PMI, you know, it has expanded, you know, at the farthest rate in 12 years. So all these, were um, really good signs now I think the concern here though is will that kind of consumption be sustainable in mm-hmm. other words you know once that revenge spending uh, momentum is you know tapering off um, then can we continue to bolster right the income and also consumer confidence going forward um, one thing I think the positive thing is that as we also saw the retail uh, sorry the um, real estate market is recovering in terms of home sales. Um, So that hopefully will be able to boost the confidence of consumers, right, due to that wealth effect. And also, um, as people buy houses, they would have more uh, spending. Um, But I think the downside is that unemployment, right, so um, especially for youth unemployment rate, it has gone up, actually, uh, to now 19.6% in March uh, compared to 18.6% back in February. So, you know, the job situation is relatively tough. So um, we'll have to find ways to create jobs so that people would have stable jobs and income. Then that would help them to continue to spend.
0: Mm -hmm. And Aina, so China's inflation numbers were at a low of uh, 0.7% for March. And there is a discussion about whether there is a deflation in China. So how worried should we be about that?
1: I don't think you should be too worried about it. Uh, there, there will be um, uh, some pressures coming in, uh, depending on how bad the economic slowdown is. Uh, you could see um, raw materials going down in price. That, of course, would uh, help with inflation in the United States, in China. Um, but it, it's what's interesting is you know the complete difference. If you look at China, their concern is about <laughs> you know well sh- do we have enough inflation. Uh, Whereas you look at Great Britain and they're literally, you know, they're in danger of becoming a third world country because they're eating through their savings because inflation. Um, So you really do see this split that I I keep referring to between uh, areas uh, around China. And if you look in Southeast Asia, the inflation rates there are much more manageable than they are in Europe um, and other places.
0: Well, we're speaking with Ina Tangan, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute, and also Yan Liang, Professor of Economics at University. And after a short break, we'll take a look at how should we regulate the chatbot technology. Stay with us. I am Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hangxan Bank China. The world today is a real fun program, You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Deep Dive, a podcast of CGTN Radio. Go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts,
1: Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations.
0: You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. China's internet regulator has drafted rules to manage how companies develop generative AI products like ChatGPT. This move comes after several Chinese companies reviewed versions of the AI chatbot. Globally, government regulations of the fast development of generative AI is a growing trend. So, Aina, first, uh, let's start with the recent development of the AI powered chatbot and uh, Alibaba is jumping on the bandwagon to roll out a bot and other companies like China's Baidu and NetEase and also the big international names like Google, Amazon and Meta they are all working on the chat GPT style products so why are there so many companies working on it?
1: Well, you know, part of it is fashion. Uh, once uh, there's a big, um, you know, announcement and the public reacts to it, everybody wants to jump on board and say, "Oh yeah, we're doing that as well." Um, at this juncture, there's as long as you have a large pool of data, uh, you uh, th- there's very little barrier to entry in terms of creating a chatbot. Uh, it it takes work, yes, but. Uh, if you don't have that big data, creating a chatbot is 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 not easy. You can uh, create one, but then you know you have to you know it has to be connected to some sort of a data stream. So, at this juncture, people should be very very careful um, about uh, you know throwing money at these things. They should, if they're going if they're interested in this area, they should understand what. Uh, these AIs can do what they cannot do, and uh, understand what the different approaches that these companies are taking, uh, especially when it comes to uh, revenue lines and things like this. Because if you don't have that, you're um you know it's it's like a few years ago you know people were so happy because the companies Mm. they were investing in were burning money in huge piles so uh, that is not something that you want to return to um people want to see revenues at this point so just be very careful understand the market and the different approaches and what uh, competitive advantages they have and then uh, how this can be applied
0: Mm. So, yeah, so from your understanding, what can this chatbot do and how can they change our work and lives? Right. So
2: I think the chatbot is um, only just a small segment of, you know, AI or generative AI. Um, but at this point, I think really uh, what they can perform is really to analyze large amount of data and generate responses, um, whatever that might be. So, you know, things like customer services, um, I think this could be done by AI. Uh, sorry, by chatbots uh, in a very effective way because they can analyze many data right in a very routinized way and respond to customers' demands. Um, other jobs, like again, similar like accountants that analyze large amount of financial data, um, graphic designers that are you know working with images, um, again large amount of images that needs to generate some sort of new images. Um, um, finance jobs, financial, you know, analysis, you know, um, and arguably also some of the tech jobs um, that are they're relatively routine um, programmings and things like that. And also legal jobs. Um, but those are should be relatively low stake, right? Like Palo they that are trying to prepare some, uh, you know, law related, legal related documents. So those are some of the, I think, very potentially uh, beneficial areas where uh, these kinds of chatbots can make a contribution. Um, so I agree with Anna, there's a lot of uncertainty at this point still, especially when it comes to regulations. Um, I think China is moving uh, ahead in you know publishing the 20 points of regulations. And exactly at this time, I think you know the commerce department in the United States are now opening for public input um, for you know AI regulations. So I think the regulatory uncertainty is one thing. Uh, but then also I think the idea is, you know, as Elon Musk talked about that, you know, there are some concerns about how fast we wanna develop this technology before we really know, you know, the consequences of it. So um, there is likely that you know some uh, entrepreneurs or um, investors may pause on this sort of uncertainties and risks.
0: Mm. So, know with the market of chatbot expanding and the implication of uh, what AI might bring to the world, of course, some are taking measures to rein its fast development. And we see the EU has proposed a rules to restrict the use of AI in some critical infrastructure, education, law enforcement etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So what do you make of that? And where should they focus the regulatory attention?
1: Okay, so what we have here is a gold rush. People see or think they see that they can be making a fortune. Uh, this idea that Elon Musk has that we should all take six months and think about it is nonsense. I mean, it sounds good. Um, but the fact is, um, none of these players would obey it. They would all just take all the research and do it secretly because they would be afraid that the other ones are also violating the, um, this kind of informal agreement as well. So at this juncture, what are we dealing with? Um, the real danger from AI is, is, is not the AI itself. It's uh, the information stream. Um, a, all of these different companies have different information scenes. Baidu, you know, obviously has everything that, you know, when you, uh, you're using their products, uh, Google has it, Facebook has it, uh, Microsoft has it, all these things. I think the, the, the government is looking at the wrong end of the horse. Uh, what they really should be doing is regulating the flow of information. And by that, I mean, they should be insisting that probably information should be like a sewer, water and gas, something that is open to everybody once it's been properly sanitized. And that can only be done um, centrally. You have to set up standards so that the information that's coming out uh, does not disclose anything that it shouldn't. Shouldn't, uh, And then that information can be used by others. Why do I say this? Well, one, you don't want a monopoly of uh, large entities who simply own the data and therefore able to use it uh, coercively. In essence, instead of competing for business, they're going to tax consumers for using their services. Um, And second, you want to encourage more innovation. Uh, If the data is available online and it's sanitized and, you know, anybody can get at it and develop newer products, I think it's very good. And uh, you, you know you're going to see a, a lot more um, new things come out, more useful things, things that are applicable to smaller niches, uh, industries, etc. So, you know, until they start thinking about this in a way that is constructive, instead of just saying, well, let's put our finger in the dike and hope that the dam doesn't burst, that approach generally doesn't work. You really need to look at this in terms of its structure and how you can uh, address it in some way, which is going to be fair, equitable, and also add value for everyone involved.
0: Mm -hmm. So, yeah, what do you think? What kind of social or ethical issues do we need to consider in the development of AI?
2: Right. So I think this is very interesting because, um, as I mentioned, that you know, as China launched this twenty points uh, regulations, um, the U.S. is also working on their own regulatory framework. And when you look at China's proposals or China's regulations rather, um, they really emphasize, you know, that we need to make sure that these kind of generative AI chatbots will provide accurate and uh, accurate information. So I think, as Anna was talking about, um, that you know. They wanted to make sure that these data, that, are, that the data or the information that are provided are accurate, right? So to avoid any sort of disinformation, misinformation, and you know, uh, deliberate massage of of data information, and so on and so forth. And the second emphasis, I think, um, from my point of view, is really the emphasis on privacy. So data privacy, um, how we make sure some data are protected. Um, and then the third emphasis was on the protection of, you know, IPRs, uh, the intellectual property rights, because essentially I think, you know, what the a- the chatbots these days are doing is really taking people's work without crediting crediting mm. them. Um, so I think that is a very important issue. And I think the United States should also really put a lot more emphasis on that. It's interesting to see the divergence, but I agree with um, Ina um, that this sort of protection in terms of make sure um, that there is a certain integrity, right? There is a certain privacy protection. I think that's really very important.
0: Mm, and yeah, you are a professor. So how do you think our universities and higher education should respond to the development of the chatbot?
2: Right, I think that's a great question. Um, I do think that it's important to introduce students to chat GPT or other chatbots. It, it is a disservice um, not to do so. Um, because I do think that education needs to catch up with the technological development. Um, but the other practical sense, I think I really want to emphasize to students to understand the strengths and weakness of these technologies, right? As they're developing their critical, critical thinking minds, um, they don't want to let the, the AI to do the job for them and take away the jobs in the future. So um, one practical thing that I'm doing right now is actually you know, giving students questions and ask them to ask ai right uh, what kind of questions they would ask and then based on the ai's uh, the chatbot's responses then i would ask them to critically assess right what these responses look like Um, you know do these chatbots get the uh, one-sided responses or their responses are in a way more balanced and so on and so forth so it's not to prevent them from using ai but to use it um, you know, in a conscious way and a meaningful way.
0: Well, we're speaking with Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Villamette University, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.